Hello, my guest from today is a cookie with two fillings. The Melkle Project, as he was known in the music industry and the wolf of all streets, the brand, the legend here in the crypto space. After playing alongside names like Snoop, Rihanna, Justin Timberlake, or Steve Aoki, he continued his accolades by being featured on Cointelegraph, Fox, New York Times, Forbes, or Coindesk. He has a large and smart audience that consumes his content avidly from the Wolf Den newsletter and the Wolf of All Streets podcast, where some of his recent guests were SBF Raul Paul Marcusco or Michael Saylor. Not so long ago, Binance named him Influencer of the Year as his words of wisdom on trading at macro helped millions of people. Scott, welcome to the Stakeberg DAO Talks. Thank you so much. That was quite the intro. I'm not sure uh, so well-deserved, but I'll take it. Thank you. <laughs> well, before we go in deep into crypto, tell me if DJing was more fun than crypto bull markets. Uh, yeah. I mean, I love crypto bull markets, but uh, I think that DJing for a stadium full of people is a feeling that's very hard to probably replicate sitting behind your computer and screaming into YouTube or, or a podcast, but I, it's pretty close. It's pretty close. Which fame was, uh, was easier to handle? Uh, the D I think that, uh, I was only moderately famous in the DJ space. As much as I played with a lot of people and played some huge shows, I was kind of the small name on the flyer you know, the big, uh, flyers for the party, the huge names, the Steve Aoki's and, and, uh, chain smokers at the top. And I'm, you know, I was there on the flyer, but one of the littler names. Uh, and, and honestly, you deal with trolling in music, certainly. It's an interesting space, a lot of criticism, more of your art. So I guess you take it personally, but there's nothing like dealing with the crypto community en masse. I mean, this is a very, very hard place uh, to be. You said famous. I don't know if that's the word, but to, to be known. And certainly if you actually use your face and your name, which not many people do, right? I'm a very, very easy target. I'm very, very transparent. So I think that I take quite a bit of abuse. I'm not complaining about it. That's the nature, I think, of the beast, but it's much harder in the crypto space. What do you, what do you enjoy more, like writing the newsletter or hosting the podcast? I think hosting the podcast, but it's close, right? Uh, the newsletter is sort of my opportunity to keep myself accountable for being on top of the market and knowing what's going on at all times. So as much as I'm writing the newsletter for other people, it gives me a reason to wake up at four o'clock, 4.30 every single morning, review everything that's happening, get a good feel for it, for all the content that I'm going to work on throughout the day for my own trading and investment decisions, and then to really write about it and put my thoughts together. But there are times when writing a newsletter five days a week becomes really a job, obviously, right? I mean, it's, it's a really a lot of work. It's really a lot of work. Like I said, I get, get up by 4.30 in the morning at the latest to make sure that I get that out generally before my kids wake up. As far as the podcast, the podcast, podcast is like, might be the greatest job ever, right? Maybe DJing is better. It's close, but podcasting is very close. It's like you get to call the most brilliant professor at every university and because they want to tell their story, they'll spend an hour with you talking about whatever you want. So it's like free college from the most brilliant professors in the world. I can contact almost any person. You know the feeling, right? Yeah. Contact them, have a conversation with them. They would have never given me the time of day if I didn't have the podcast and there weren't people watching and I get to learn so much. So I really think that that's an incredibly valuable experience for me personally in a selfish manner. Uh, I love it. 
Well, you mentioned 4 a.m. And I know you are a pretty disciplined guy. Like, what's your normal, not daily routine, because you mentioned some of it, but your normal trading routine? So trading's become a much, much smaller part of what I do over the past few years. And I've been pretty vocal about that. It got to a point, I traded my way to being successful after decades of failing, by the way. But I came to crypto at the right, it was the right place at the right time. I learned discipline finally at the right time when I was sick of losing money for long enough. And I did very well trading. But it got to the point where because of my investments and the way that crypto behaved, I was very fortunate that sort of my investment portfolio ballooned to the point where trading didn't make as much financial sense for me, right? I, I'm not going to, I have a certain comfort level with the size that I'm willing to trade, uh, no matter how big my portfolio is. And that's something personal. So the amount that I'm willing to trade on any given trade almost generally is not enough to be an impactful percentage of my portfolio and therefore to compel me to spend my time and energy doing it. Trading can be very stressful. It can interfere with the other parts of your life, the time you want to be spending with your kids that you're obsessing over the price of yeah. an asset and it shouldn't matter. I think I just got older, more mature, had children and trading became less interesting and investing became far more interesting. And then I, you know, really started to enjoy interacting with the community, the newsletter, the podcast, all of those things. And those started to dominate my time, which has been great for my trading. I'm a much better trader because I only trade during the perfect conditions do I feel compelled to actually enter something. And so the fact that I'm not concerned with my trading on a daily basis, when I do decide to do it, it's usually has a very high hit rate. Do you do it like for fun or for profit? A little bit of both. I, I don't honestly, at this point, I don't particularly find trading to be that fun. Uh, and I think that uh, when you actually become a competent trader, there's quotes about this all over uh, you can find, but you know, trading should be as exciting as watching paint dry. Basically, if you're getting a rush from trading, if it feels like gambling, if you're losing sleep over it, then you're, ga you're, you're a gambler and not a trader at that point. So the fact is, when you become good enough about it that you're not emotionally attached to your losses or to being right and wrong, that is when you're a good trader, but also when the fun of going to the casino is sort of removed from the equation. In a recent newsletter, you said the following, like, and I quote, while traders and investors are inclined to blame the market and other outside factors for their failures, the real culprit is usually the person staring back at them in the mirror. How difficult is it for you to use the same principle in real life? Uh, it, it, it's, I think it's always difficult. I think everyone's knee-jerk reaction to any situation that goes poorly is first to find someone else to blame besides yourself. It's very hard to take accountability for your own bad decisions and for your own actions. Uh, but if you're married, your wife will always remind you that it's your fault. Uh, so that makes it much easier, I think. <laughs> um, but yeah, listen, it's something that requires discipline. It's not something that is your natural reaction to things. But the fact is, especially if it's a financial decision, if you're not willing to enter any a trade, an investment, a financial decision outside of life, deciding what school you're gonna, your kid's going to go to and how much that's going to cost, every financial decision... If you're not willing to take accountability for it and you're looking for someone else to blame, you're never going to be happy and you're never going to grow, right? And the fact is, unless you've been outright scammed, which happens and is very sad in crypto, like people literally get outright scammed. But if you're just 
blindly taking a trade that you see on Twitter from some influencer, that's not their fault if you lose money. That's your fault, right? It's your fault. And you entered without a plan. And so I think that people just need to learn to take accountability for all their decisions, but definitely for their financial decisions. It's really important. And once you can do that, once you can look in the mirror and say, oh, okay, this was my fault. I was wrong. Forgive yourself and move on. It makes life much easier for future financial decisions. Have you tried to educate your, your kids in this direction as well? My kids are young. They're, they're only six and two. So I, I talked to my, my daughter about it a bit. My son, uh, I mean, he's just yeah. a wrecking ball. He's two. So. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and it's hard. She's, you know, children are emotional beings, but it's funny when you uh, start to trade, you start to realize you're basically just a big child because you're also an emotional being. You're making sort of similar decisions. I think as they get older, it'll be a very uh, fundamental part of how we teach them. But right now, I, my kids, we just kind of let them be kids still. I'm not uh, sitting down my six-year-old and giving her long lectures on the history of money, you know, so. Well. <laughs> you know, because I tried to explain to, to, my, to my little guy, he's like four right now. And I'm trying to explain that whenever like not so pleasant things happen to him in the kindergarten, he always like has to think like what he did wrong and try to not do that again and see if the same outcomes happens or not. And sometimes, you know, his feedback is like, well, what the heck are you saying? And sometimes he says like, hmm, that's why. And I, I, I was curious if, uh, if managed to have this kind it, of- discussion. In those situations where my daughter, you know, like if you're playing a game and she blames something, you know how kids are, you play a game yeah. and they get mad if they lose and they blame something, we definitely, talk about accountability and responsibility and, and taking it upon yourself. And also more the lesson that you lost, big deal, move on, right? Exactly. That, 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 that the losing part is not what you should be focused on. It doesn't matter. We played to have fun. We had fun, right? Um, but, uh, you know, I think the harder lessons will come with a bit more age. Yeah, you bet. Do you journal? Like I know traders usually journal. Do you do it? I used to journal for years. I thought it was a very important and fundamental part of my training. And actually, in the early days of the newsletter, I talked about it all the time. I actually, because early in uh, my career on Twitter, hence the name The Wolf of All Streets, actually, uh, every time I would start talking about crypto stuff, because it's just what I was into, people would say, shut up, idiot, go back to DJing, right? <laughs> Dude, go back to what you know, stay in your lane. Right? And that's where I jokingly said the wolf of all streets, the idea being that you can excel at more than one thing, right? You can't be put in a box. You shouldn't just allow yourself to have people tell you, well, you're good at this. You can't be good at this other thing. And it sort of just stuck and it was a joke, right? But as a result, when I started trading, I was doing very well and I was getting a lot of pushback that like I was lying or whatever. So Queen yep. Telegraph actually came to me and said, Let's do a weekly trade journal. And I kept a transparent for months trade journal in Cointelegraph that was published every week of all of my trades for the week. So I used to journal. Uh, I think it's exceptionally important that you do, especially if you're relatively new. Even I, I have friends who are very advanced traders who journal every single trade, right? You're, and there's a lot of ways to do that, obviously. Uh, you want to at least... You, you want to at least like write down what your plan was so that you can remember why you took that trade, right? Uh, it was a support resistance. OBV was doing yep. this. RSI was doing that. This is how I calculated my risk. This is where I wanted to place my stop loss entry exit plan. 
portfolio risk, all of those things. So the metrics. But I think the more important part is if you can do it, sort of being more like a diary and recording your emotions at each part of the decision. I think that's what improves it, right? How was I feeling when I entered this trade? Why did I do it? Was I tired? Was I hungover? Uh, was I just like running somewhere with my kids in the car and saw an opportunity, so I decided to enter? Or was I sitting in focus during my trading hours at my desk? When I decided to exit, did I exit at my plan or did I make an emotional decision to exit otherwise? Did I exit before my take profit? Did I move my stop? Like all those things, those are the things you need to understand in real time and think about. Because when you look back, A, you're not going to blame yourself. B, you're not going to remember why you did it. And C, you're never going to learn anything because you're going to make the same bad decisions over and over and over again. The fact is, when you execute a trade, when you decide to hit that buy button, which is the least important part, by the way, selling is the hard part. But when you hit that buy button and execute that trade, that is your most, the moment that you have the most clarity and the most perspective on the decision that you're making, every change or decision you make after that is emotional and you're likely forgetting why you took the trade in the first place. You, you took a trade and you put a stop loss for a reason. If you're moving your stop loss because of some new information, it's almost always a bad decision that's actually based on your emotions because you took the trade for a reason and had that stop there for a reason. And still... I'm sure you had like systems and you were following this system, like setups and so on. And sometimes you were, you failed to actually execute on those. Most Why? of the time. Most of Why? the time. Why? Because I'm human. Right. And because I do, I can, you can preach it all day long and I, I can, now it's, I'm pretty good at it. Right. And now I also am confident enough in my skills that I can, have a bit less of a plan, right? That, I, that I'm, I'm aware of, if it gets to here, what will I do? Or if this happens, what will I do? So it's sort of a more evolving plan. It's not a fixed. And mm -hmm. I like to scale in and out, right? So I'm not like just taking profit on a trade at a certain level. I'm taking 10% of my profit or 20%, right? Based on what's happening. But yeah, I mean, in general, you question your decisions and you think that you're a genius in the moment and you make a decision to change. Sometimes that goes well. Sometimes more often I say it would go poorly. And uh, there's a phenomenon in trading is called random reinforcement, right? It's that basically the market tends to reward bad behavior in the short term and to punish good behavior. But, and that's why traders should never judge themselves over 10 trades or a year or whatever. You have to tr judge your trading success and career over decades and thousands of trades because it's a game of numbers, right? You want to be 55% successful yeah. over a very long time is a huge, huge edge, right? So random reinforcement, here's an example, right? Let's say we got a guy named Scott. And Scott uh, hears about cryptocurrency for the first time. He goes and he buys a whole bunch of SHIB, right? Because his friend told him about it. It immediately goes up 10 times. Scott sells it, gets rich. He's a genius. The market has rewarded his bad behavior. His bad behavior was no plan, didn't know the asset, didn't have any understanding, bought something and got lucky. He won, he hit a lottery. But what does Scott then do? Scott quits his job to become a crypto trader because he's a God tier trader and can't be stopped. He's an unstoppable force of nature, gives himself credit for his success. 
And he tries to replicate that and loses all of that money and more and has to sell his house five weeks later because the market then re, you know, reverts to the mean for his behavior. But what's the other side of that? The other side is that you have an amazing plan. You've been trading for years. You get it together. You have a perfect stop loss, perfect position size, perfect portfolio management, and you lose 10 trades in a row. Right. Just because you're on a bad run and it happens, you're not your system's fine. You have to judge it over thousands. So then what but then what do you do? You get pissed off and you revenge trade. Right. You take, I can't believe I lost. I'm entering again. And what inevitably happens? You make a ton of money uh, on that trade. Hmm. Right. And it erases your entire system because the market has now reinforced your bad decision that it's going to be profitable. And that's how markets work and why you need to have a plan and why you can't make emotional decisions and why you need to judge it over the long term. Because the market almost always rewards bad behavior in the short term and punishes good behavior. And this is another reason why you should avoid leverage when trading. Oh, trade. yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, listen, I use it sparingly. I'll take, you know, I've taken, well, in the last couple of months, I've taken four leverage trades, five, um, all longs all on bullish divergences that were oversold with RSI because that's just what I use. That's my system. I've used every system in the world. It's so simple and I don't have to think about it. Just wait indefinitely until that happens and, and take it. And I'm like five for six, three for three this week, even in a downtrend, right? That doesn't mean I'll be that successful over time. It's just been a good strategy. But for me, leverage is a risk management tool. Like if you want to take, throw a round number, $100,000 position, right? If you're using spot, you have to take $100,000 of your Bitcoin and put it on an exchange, right? That's a big risk in my mind. If you're using 10x leverage, you can put $10,000 on the exchange and take a $100,000 position. I'm not borrowing money to make my position bigger. That's a fallacy, right? If I 100x it, I can gamble with 100 times more money than I had. No, you're just going to lose very quickly. Yeah. And so- if you're going to have a large position size, it's great. And leverage, when when used responsibly, is actually irrelevant, right? 5% leverage, 10%, 50%, 100%. You choose your leverage based on the other factors of your trade that you would have used without leverage. Where's my, ent- where's my stop loss first? Where's my entry? What's my position size? Act accordingly. If your stop loss is 4% below price, let's say your stop loss is, you know, if your stop loss is a half a percent below price, you're taking a really tight trade, like you right by your invalidation, use 100x leverage. Doesn't matter. As long as price yep. doesn't go down 1%, you're not going to get liquidated. So liquidation is not a stop loss. Your stop loss determines how much leverage you're going to use. If your stop is going to hit before your liquidation, you can use the highest available leverage and risk the least amount of your capital with counterparty risk on the exchange. Which were, because I was asking you about journaling, I was curious to know how often you do you, like, were you revisiting the, the lessons or the trades in order like to summarize the, what, you, what you have learned? A lot of people go back and read their old trades to learn, and that's what you're supposed to do. I'm going to be honest and say I very rarely did that. Right. Unless there was some super memorable trade that I went back and looked at where I did something crazy. So for me, it was more the exercise of just, you know, admitting 
the mistakes I had made and putting it on paper mm-hmm. because then you're accountable for it. So for me, that was what was impactful. For a lot of people, though, it's actually to go back, study the trades, figure out what they did right and wrong. For me, it was more like saying, like, when you have to actually write down, I moved yeah. my stop, I moved my stop loss because you can't help but realize how stupid it was, <laughs> right? You know, you may have made that bad decision, but you know that it was stupid. And I think going through that accountability exercise over and over again, eventually, you just don't want to write down how stupid you were again. Yeah, I think it's easier to be honest when you are writing. When you are just in your own head, like your brain is just giving you like a shitloads of arguments like, yeah, but you were tired. Yeah, but, you know, the market was hectic. A big news was coming uh, and you didn't know about that and so on and so forth. But when you put it in writing, it's like reading yeah, you can't, can't, yeah. can't, You can't help but uh, read it and face it, right? You have to face it. Well, when we record this, going live might be delayed with all the Russian shit happening. The on-chain that data shows there isn't much retail in the market. What are the main reasons they left and what could happen in the near future uh, to have them back in? Well, I'm not going to say this. From an investment perspective, it's not a good thing that retails left the market, but they always come back, right? This is a real simple question, actually. What's going to bring retail back? Higher prices that they feel they need to FOMO into. That's all retail cares about. We can talk about news stories and narratives and Bitcoin is the future global reserve currency and regulation and all these things. People buy when the price is really high because they feel like they're missing out. That's what's going to bring retail back. From a trading perspective, investment perspective, whatever, Bitcoin has massive swings because it's a nascent market and the nature of the participants, right? It behaves like a risk-off asset sometimes or a risk-on asset, right? All the narratives. The reason, as you said, on-chain metrics show that retail bought really high and is now puking their positions at the lows. That's what retail does, right? Whales would not be whales if they couldn't count on retail buying the top and selling the bottom, right? And it's what causes the market cycles. Whales are willing to sell down to whatever price finally shakes out all of the weak hands and gets the coins into their own hands. My, I used to be one of those idiot retail, my favorite strategy in the world now. And people say that actually I'm too dismissive of narratives and too dismissive of bad news. I don't care about any of it. I buy every time I feel there's like an irrational dip or an overreaction. My favorite thing is buying blood when things seem terrible. I just, I, I love it. I love it. And it's the core of my strategy, especially if it, if it lines up with some technical indicator. So listen, a spot ETF would be huge news, more government adoption, huge news, all those things. But the reality is retail just wants to be a part of something that they feel they're missing out on when they think, oh my God, this thing is at 70,000. It's going to a million. Uh, it's at a hundred. It's got to go to 500. It's at 500. It's going to a million. That's when they come in. And it's usually the top. How do you feel about the current market? Uh, I think it's an opportunity, a very big opportunity, right? And so if you are focused on the market short term, which emotionally we all are, it's painful, right? I mean, I've been through portfolio swings because I'm an investor. I believe in holding the bulk of my portfolio regardless, hell or high water, right? It's just how I am. 70% at least of my portfolio, I'm holding indefinitely. 
there may be a plan for a long-term exit, but, but some of them definitely. So, you know, last. Have you did it like, so, sorry to interrupt. Like, have you did it like uh, during the bear market in 2018, 19? Yeah, I held most of it. Sucked. I, my portfolio drew down about 90% and then was up 10X a few months later when the market went back. So. And what were like the most, like the main takeaways from that bear market? Uh, that I was patient and it was a good idea, right? I mean, I could have beat myself. The thing is I could pretend that I would have sold. That's the problem is that people like to look back at what they could have done and pretend that mm -hmm. they would have done it, but they never would have because they would have, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, if I had just sold the top and that's another psychological phenomenon with traders and investors, right? I post these questions on Twitter and the newsletter all the time. I think they're so funny. Like, let's say you had $100,000 to start right? And you traded that up to $500,000, right? And you're like, wow, it's amazing. And then your portfolio, the market gets smashed, goes down 60%, and your portfolio is at $200,000. Did you make money or did you lose money? Right? It's the question. And a lot of people's knee-jerk reaction, you started with 100, your portfolio- They're saying that they lost. Uh, Right. On paper, went to 500, comes back to 200. A lot of people go, I lost. I could have had $500,000. <laughs> right. But no, you've actually doubled your money. The problem is that mentally, you know that there was a moment when you could have had that. First of all, you wouldn't have had yeah. the liquidity to exit. You never would have sold it. You thought it was going to a million. But then in that moment, you feel like an idiot and you feel stupid. So I've been through 90% portfolio uh, drawdowns. I'm probably in the midst of a 65 or 70% portfolio drawdown right now from November. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I, I, want I, my I want my portfolio to make higher lows, just like I want my chart to make higher lows. I interrupted you while you were saying where we are in the current market. Oh, in, in the current market, uh, like I said, I, I believe it's an opportunity. Uh, in the short term, it sucks. Uh, but long-term, I think that you buy any dip unless you believe that 69,000 was the highest price Bitcoin will ever be in the future of humanity, then you buy every price under 69,000. And the lower it goes, the better. And yes, short-term, like I said, that's what I say, it's really horrible and painful. But if you weren't going to say, if you accept that you weren't going to sell it anyways, you should be really excited that prices are lower and you have an opportunity to buy it. And if you were someone who FOMO'd in at 60,000 because you thought it was going to 100, and at that moment when you bought 60,000, you were like, you know what sucks that I never got a chance to buy lower. You should be salivating and excited that the market is giving you a second chance to buy the prices you missed before you decided to get in. It's all about your mentality and perspective but it requires conviction that price is going to go up again. And by the way, it always does. So it would be a major departure for history for all markets to have topped for the rest of time. Hmm. I saved one of your newsletters from January, 2021. So like one year ago. Oh, wow. The title, the, the, are you ready? <laughs> the title was Ethereum is poised for a big year. And you said, and I quote, even as other coins try, try to compete with Ethereum, over 95% uh, of the market is using, is using Ethereum's services rather than compete, uh, competing protocols. Bitcoin might be the king when it comes to storing value, but Ethereum is the king of creating value. No other platform has come close yet. 
Do you see ETH flipping Bitcoin in terms of the store of value narrative? That sounds like me. Um, I don't remember <laughs> writing it, but it sounds like me. Uh, I've written a newsletter every day for a couple of years. Uh, I, 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 the flipping narrative, I, I, no, I don't know. I do not believe that Ethereum becomes a better store of value than Bitcoin, even with like the, the burns and the deflationary aspect, ETH 2.0. I think that, um, in fact, I, I hate comparing the two. My view is that there's Bitcoin, which is a store of value, digital gold, and you can argue whether those are true, certainly with current market conditions, but that's the narrative. And I think there's Bitcoin and there's everything else. And everything else is like a tech investment that is like being a personal venture capitalist and trying to find the next big winner, right? And it's sort of, and Ethereum is at the top of that bucket. And that's great, right? I hate the argument. I hate the maximalists. I hate that, I don't hate maximalists. I think they're great, but I hate the maximalist <laughs> argument that it has to be one or the other. I talk about this all the time, but it's like the notion of being a gold bug and hating Google. Yeah. Right, like they have nothing to do with one another besides, and the fact is, the only thing they have in common is a proof of work for now blockchain, right? Uh, the the same consensus mechanism or protocol. They have nothing to do with it, with one another. So I don't even care if Ethereum flips Bitcoin because I think it's comparing largely apples to oranges, right? And so I think that you have to have some Bitcoin for the reasons you have to have some Bitcoin. But if you want to bet on more upside and take heavy tech, and by the way, investing in tech has been a good idea as technology has evolved over the years, then you start looking at Ethereum going further down that risk curve. Maybe it'll flip it, but I don't even think it matters. I wouldn't be sitting here thinking, wow, I really wonder if like Facebook's market cap is going to be bigger than gold, silvers, right? It just doesn't matter. Not, not a relevant metric. Do you have more Bitcoin or Ethereum in your portfolio? I have more Bitcoin. But now it's it's about 60-40, right? And it used to be like of my of my long-term holds, I'm basically 60-40 Bitcoin to Ethereum. That's the ratio of those. That doesn't mean my entire long-term hold portfolio is just Bitcoin and Ethereum, but relative to one another, it's about 60-40. And it used to be like 95-5 or 90-10. Listen, I've been saying for years that Ethereum is going to out doesn't mean it's a better asset, just that it would probably, as a trade, outperform Bitcoin. And clearly, that's kind of been the case. So you spoke about maximalism. And we like to say that Web3 is inclusive, is friendly. But we see lots of craziness on Twitter, for example. How do you handle the toxicity? Well, that's not Web3 toxicity. That's just human beings being assholes, kind of what they do. Right. And, uh, and we all do. So it's not a criticism of other people, but like, yeah, we can make it as if that's a web three thing, but have you ever seen people who cheer for different sports teams? Yeah. You ever seen people arguing about their religions or their politics or their nation? It's the same. It's the human condition and has almost nothing to do with crypto or web three. In my opinion, it's just people disagree with things. And when you get them behind a screen, especially if they're anonymous, they can say whatever they want that they would never say to someone's face. And that's where you get the toxicity. I have met some of the people who have trolled me the hardest on Twitter, just going to things. And they've always been gracious, nice people to my face. <laughs> from time to time, you show the most imbecile DMs you receive from Twitter. Tell us two funny examples that you can recall. Honestly, I closed my DMs a long time ago, but like it's either people calling me really, really bad names 
Um, you know, uh, one of them that I remember recalling, I don't remember, I think the guy called me a fag or something, but then I looked, <laughs> I looked, I looked and like, I clicked on his profile and it was all like Jesus saves and Bible verses and stuff. And he's like on the internet calling people like bad names and just the sort of clear bipolarity of that. But I don't know, man, I, I get a lot of, you know, it kind of went from being funny. The reason I closed my DMs, it went from being funny to being like really toxic and aggressive to being borderline dangerous. Um, because I'm dangerous as in threats, extortion, pictures of my family, people threatening Seriously. my wife. Yeah. So that's why I closed my DMs. Just because you're posting like charts. Uh, because, yeah. Because you're posting charts or like, because, you know, listen, no matter if you get bigger in this space, people are going to say you're getting paid or you're a scammer or you're this and that, you know how it is. Like you can't get to a certain point without having a lot of people hate you. And so it just had got to the point where it was a little bit too much. And so I just closed it off, you know, unfortunately. You've written an interesting piece where you compared Bitcoin with ramen, like recently. Tell us more about that metaphor, because I, th I think it was like super interesting. Yeah, it was something, it's an idea I had. And my friend Jason Williams also wrote about it a bit, I believe, in his book, uh, Bitcoin Hard Money. Hard money you can't fuck with, something like that, the Wu-Tang yeah, reference, Yeah, that's obviously. exactly right, yeah. Yeah, and so uh, the idea basically is that it's what makes money, right? Or what makes a store of value. Obviously, you can go through all the actual categories that define money, but there's no point in going through that one by one right now. The idea was basically that there was an inmate in the race riots in prison in California, and they were coming for him, and they were about to kill him, and instead he made the guys who were coming to kill him ramen, they became friends, ate their ramen, and ramen solved the race rights <laughs> at a very simple level. But the point was that money or a store of value to a person is dependent largely upon the situation that person's in. And in prison, ramen is maybe cigarettes, depending on where you are. Ramen is pretty much the most valuable thing. And it has the properties of money there, right? It's scarce. You can't get much more of it. It has utility. You can actually eat it. You can trade it. It has all of the, the qualities that Bitcoin has that are better than a lot of other things. So it's basically this interesting comparison of looking at Bitcoin in the real world versus how ramen is utilized and viewed as the hardest form of money in the prison system. You, you mentioned Web3 and I know like you are an artist, you understand the music industry and all the struggles creative people encounter when trying to monetize their work and so on. Do you think Web3 could come with some solutions? I think Web3 is going to come with a lot of solutions. I'm very bullish on Web3. Like, I don't know how Web3 became sort of a four-letter word. You know, obviously, you had sort of Jack Dorsey and a lot of people saying that it's a money grab by VCs. Um, and I think that that was sort of, has been the negative perception is that it's good for kind of Wall Street and venture capital and maybe bad for the people, you yeah. know? But I think that that's... Uh, wildly inaccurate assessment of the situation. I'm not even sure that's what you're asking me about, but that's what I'm going to talk about really quick. Yeah, 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 go on. Yeah, that's exactly right, yeah. Uh, yeah, um, so listen, Jack is a billionaire and it's a lot of billionaires fighting about billionaire things, right? Mark Andreessen and him, and they're all billionaires and billionaires don't have any perspective on what's happening with us. It's not a criticism, how could they, right? They, their life is different. So yes, 
he is correct that the people who will profit the most from Web3 innovation are venture capitalists. Well, that, that's, that's not different from Web2. Correct. And so here's why that doesn't matter, right? That doesn't matter. And not only does it not matter, it's not anyone's fault, unless you want to blame regulators in the United States. It's their fault. If you're going to start a company, Web3, Web7, Web19.8, doesn't matter. You need funding, right? And how do you get funding? Well, you have to either go to venture capital, you have to raise outside of the United States, or you can only go to accredited investors who you need to personally KYC every single one in the United States. Nobody's going to do that. In the United States, if you want to invest in venture capital, you either have to have a million dollars in assets or prove that you're making over $250,000 a year for multiple years in a row. And that has to be documented and proven just for you to be allowed to be one of the investors. So what every wise company does is they say, screw Americans, right? You can't, and that's why Americans can't invest in anything. It's too difficult. And by the way, that's unfair, right? Like, so you can't be mad, like Jack's mad that VCs are going to profit, but there's no scenario where legally your average investor would have been able to invest in that project anyways. It's literally illegal. Like it cannot happen. Yeah. So he's blaming the wrong person. He should be blaming the United States regulators. So obviously if you want to raise money and start a company, you have to follow the law which means generally going to venture capital or accredited investors in the United States. But that's one side of it. Okay. The other side is that they're focused on who's making the profit because they're businessmen. They're not focusing on the impact on humanity of what's being invented, created, and delivered, right? Have you ever sat back and thought, man, I love Google. It's a great search engine. But I'm super pissed about who made all the money as the early investors in Google. No, because it has a positive impact on your life, right? Exactly. Right? I don't think about who the biggest shareholders were early in Apple when I'm using my phone to do literally everything I, you want to do in the world for free, right? I'm just psyched that I have a really amazing device that makes my life better. And so what they're missing is that these Web3 innovations, metaverse, play to earn, the NFTs, the million things that it can do for artists and creators, for your individual, that a kid will be able to make money playing a video game instead of cleaning floors at Burger King, whether you think that's a good thing or not. They're missing the fact that like it won't matter to those people who was the first investor. It's going to matter to those people the impact it has on their life, hopefully being a positive one. Right, it just won't matter to them who initially made the money. It's not. It's not the metric that. That's not the metric that counts. And you, you know what? What was what amazed me? It was like that came like out of the blue, as in no one was like saying almost anything about that. And suddenly Jack was like having a beef with someone like. Out of the blue for no fucking reason. As in, well, like, I'm sure behind the, I'm sure behind the behind the scenes, him and Mark Andreessen really disliked each other. And Andreessen Horowitz is the biggest venture capitalist, one of the bigger in general in tech, but in crypto. Yeah. And so it was a shot at, a, at an <laughs> opponent. Uh, you really brought the whole Web three thing to light, which actually probably helps Web three. Yeah, you you mentioned regulation and. Whenever I tried to explain what an accredited investor is to anyone who has nothing to do with that outside US, 
they were like so amazed about the fact that you are not allowed to do some things in the biggest democracy in the world because there is someone who says like i will defend your uh, uh i will defend your interests right it's supposed while... to be for your own good it's supposed to be for exactly. your own exactly yeah. while the reality shows that what what's actually happening is that it prevents you from going early into some of the biggest opportunities there are like in the last early or otherwise it's yeah it's one of the greatest uh fallacies that we have and it's what maintains the massive wealth divide between the haves and the have-nots, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, even the stock market, your average person isn't invested in the stock market. Like less than 50% of Americans are roughly even have exposure to the stock market, but go further than that. Like rich people, really rich people are making their money in private equity, hedge funds, venture capital. I mean, in the United States, depending on how it's structured, you can't give your best friend money to invest in their business if you're not accredited. You can know this person your whole life and they can be raising money for an idea that you think is the most brilliant thing in the world and you can't give it to them, you know, because like you don't qualify. So the idea, and so this is this goes back to the Web3 thing as well. The one thing that people forget is that venture, capitals, venture capitalists are actually taking a shit ton of risk and lose money on most of those investments, right? So like, yes, it's great that they get to benefit, but you're acting like they invest in 10 things and 10 of them go up. They're hoping that one of them covers the losses on the nine that inevitably fail. And that's the thinking behind accredited investor laws is that you're, they believe that an average person will only have the money to invest in one thing and then they'll have that 10% chance instead of having that one that does it. They'll go all in on one thing and they'll be poor. And that's why they don't let you invest in venture capital because- you'll put it all into one thing and you won't be able to diversify and you'll probably end up poor or whatever. But what happened to personal responsibility? What happened to freedom? And like, as much as that may have be the purported intent, it's not like, it's just keeping the rich rich, right? The best opportunities go to the richest people who are the closest to the money and that's it. But to be told you can buy a lottery ticket, but you can't invest in your friend's business might be the most absurd, irrational thing that we have going on here amongst many absurd and irrational things. I think politicians see crypto as a hot potato and how good the regulatory framework will be is based on like showing muscles, you know, like seeing 24% of the Americans owning crypto and only 23 having a savings account, I think could be that flex. You know, I think um, I'm wondering, is crypto big enough to be a hot topic in macro politics? I think it just became big enough and we got lucky. All right. And I think we got lucky and I, nobody, this is a, this might be a uh, rough take because the infrastructure bill was so damaging to crypto. For anyone who doesn't know, we had the infrastructure bill last year. It had nothing to do with crypto. It was the biggest bill in the Biden administration, but it had one sentence about crypto that basically said everyone has to KYC, AML, mm -hmm. file on their customers' rights. So everyone freaked out, said this will destroy crypto innovation in the United States. It passed as such. But what it did was somehow a, the crypto community, which has no lobby, no PAC, no organized political power, froze this infrastructure bill for like five days. Right. And I think that that was the greatest advertisement we ever had for crypto. And it put it on the radar of politicians to say they can really mess with us, this community. 
Like I need to, I don't know if I need to be pro or against, but I can't act like it doesn't exist anymore. I can't sit on the sidelines. I have to have an opinion, right? And so I think as an accident of that infrastructure bill, which by the way, I believe they'll amend and fix, right? Rationally. So I think it'll be fine. Maybe not, but I think so. I like to (laughs) be a glass half full kind of guy. But uh, so I think now because of that and because El Salvador and other things have happened, they have to pay attention. And I think that they're realizing now how many voters care. It's going to be district to district, state to state, going to depend on the politician, Democrat to Republican, whatever it is. But over the coming years, it's only going to grow more. And they're going to like you could there will be a time not in so far distant future when you'll be voted out if you have the wrong opinion on crypto. You know, even here in Romania, people, the crypto people are very one-issue voters. And I think this creates like extra pressure to uh, to the politicians because for the politicians, because you know when you have like something new that you don't know much about, which is the case for politicians in the in the US as well. And you are putting that on the agenda that creates like uh, a position that it, it, it makes you like the avatar of the entire industry. Like what was the opinion of the crypto people about uh, Ted Cruz? Like th- six months ago, they were like, oh, well, yeah, we I don't did. really care about him. But right now, because he's, him. <laughs> exactly because right now, because he speaks about crypto, he suddenly is like, well, this is not such a bad guy after all, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it, it, it's pretty blind. It's pretty blind, you know, like, and listen, I don't, I, I get it. People, everyone's a one, almost seemingly everyone has become one issue voters, right? It's the thing that matters to you. And then you can be like cognitively dissonant about everything else in the world and pretend that uh, your, your beliefs align. I mean, that, that's a two-party problem, right? The very system means that you're just not going to agree with most of the stuff that either party says. So you have to somehow like convince yourself that you do, which is just nonsense. I I very much believe in opting. I'll vote, but I believe in opting out of politics. I think they're two sides of the same coin and I just despise politics, right? But you're absolutely right. Like Ted Cruz was like the guy who ran away from COVID, Right, yep. like flew off to Mexico to hide from COVID while his state was passing passing rules that he didn't like. So he got out of the state. And then he like mentioned owns guy owns like one Bitcoin. And people love him. Absolute hero. Right. It's like absolves you from any wrongdoing ever in the past. And we all know, I mean, that's just stupid. Right. It's just stupid, but we're still at a point where we need every uh, friend we can get. So we're gonna cheer when anyone comes on board. Are you optimistic about the the legal framework in the U.S. for the next, like, I don't know, twelve months? I, I mean, for crypto, I'm I mean, I'm always optimistic. It's my nature. Um, yeah, I am. The, now that said, like, everything's a sliding scale. You know, like we talk about centralization versus decentralization when we realize that everything falls in between, right? People want one or the other, but everything is on a sliding scale. I think that's going to be the case with regulation of very similar ideas. Like it's not going to be perfectly decentralized and exactly what we want in the dream where they're going to leave us alone to build our own global financial system, you know, that's a parallel rail to no, come on, man. Right. 
they want their taxes, they want their control, and they're always going to get it. But I also don't think it's going to be so heavy handed that they're going to be dumb enough to eliminate innovation in the United States when they know that it'll just go offshore because that's a United States decision. I think they're smart enough to realize that they want a piece of this, whether we want them to have a piece of it or not. So I think we'll be somewhere in the middle. You know, I think that they'll probably deem a lot of things securities that maybe we don't think are. I think that they'll heavily regulate stable coins to make sure that their backing is extremely transparent. And maybe that's a good thing. Um, And so I think it'll be a mixed bag, but I don't think it's going to destroy crypto in the United States by any stretch. And I think more importantly, everybody knows it's going to be regulated. So just accept it right now. We just need to find the best form of regulation you're not going to live in a world where it's unregulated and you don't report your taxes. Like, I mean, it's just not going to be the wild west. While you are an active part of this crazy crypto ride, do you ever feel that history is being written before your eyes? I always feel like history is being written before my eyes. In fact, I feel like I could be doing anything with my time. And this is the thing that I choose to do for that very reason. I truly believe it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, wake up at 4.30 in the morning to write content and then sign on to YouTube to live stream and talk about what I think in between tweeting about what I think in between going to record a podcast if I didn't truly believe in it. I did all of those things for free when I started. I was able to eventually monetize them because it was my time and there were sponsors who were interested, whatever. But... There are times when there's no sponsors or things, are, and I, I show up because it's what I want to do. And honestly, if I get sick of it and I hate it, I'll just go do something else. That's what happened with music. I literally just turned the, turned the switch off one day, and you know, I had 40,000 music followers on Twitter. And one day, I just started talking about magic internet money and never mentioned music again, and my followers went from 40 to 20,000, you know? And... Uh, and I didn't care because this is what I like. I'm just the kind of person I'm going to talk about what I like. I'm going to do what I like. And I can't tell you that I'm going to be doing this passionately 10 years from now, maybe. Or maybe I'll be, uh, maybe I'll be uh, DJing at retirement homes. Who knows? My last question is, what's one piece of investment advice you thought was great, but didn't do well in crypto? Ooh. That's a really hard one. Well, like general investment advice that they would give you in another market that does not work in crypto? Yeah, but something that you were like, you deeply believe it's it's good. it was a good piece of advice, but it failed miserably in crypto. Oh man, that's, that's really hard. I can't think of one off, off the cuff. It's such a good question. This is the first time I think I've ever been frozen by a question ever. <laughs> um, I will take that as a compliment. Yeah, it is. That's a great question. I mean, it, it, for, I can't speak to it personally. Listen, I'm happy that I held through 2017 and 18 as a result. But, you know, it was pretty, pretty painful. Um, and I considered selling quite a bit at the top. And the reason that I didn't was because I was so far orange pilled and down the rabbit hole. Like mm-hmm. I rationally believed that the top was very possibly in from my experience in markets and was extremely emotionally attached to the assets. I did short and I sold some and like I made money, but 
I could have managed it better. Uh, and the advice, I, I can't say it was a specific piece of advice, but I knew internally that I was making emotional decisions and not financial decisions, certainly on a lot of the altcoins that I held and, and things like that, that I knew like I could feel myself becoming a passionate community member instead of a trader, <laughs> you know, uh, as price continued to, 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 to this. But I, there's no like piece of specific advice that was just terrible that I received. Um, that I can think you know, of. I, I, I ask this because I have the feeling that crypto as a market has changed so many things that we, we thought they are like standard and this is how markets should go. First of all, because it's a young industry. Secondly, That's because uh, because we don't like maybe we will have access to such a young industry only once in our lifetime, and maybe we our brain cannot understand the level of volatility that we have to face uh, during like the bull phases and the bear phases uh, phases of such a young industry. So probably this is the reason why people who are coming from the traditional markets are having issues, are having like issues understanding what the heck is happening. And it seems like a big, big casino. Yeah. Because yeah. their brains is like alert, alert, alert. What you, you learned until now, it's pretty much fucked, you know? Yeah, it doesn't work. Yeah. So yeah, to that, to that regard, it's like maybe it's realizing that what happens in 20 years in the stock market can happen in 20 days in crypto and being able to survive that, you know, and not make impulsive bad decisions. But I would say that I was just like, there were times in the past when I was far too emotional and should have taken more profit or made different decisions. Cool. Scott, thanks a lot. Tell everyone where they can find you. Yeah, you can find me at, uh, on Twitter at Scott Melker, S-C-O-T-T-M-E-L-K-E-R. Everything else is linked there. And everyone should subscribe for the newsletter because it's pretty amazing. And I, I can Thank tell you, you that- I didn't even uh, know you were a subscriber until we talked I'm today, a subscriber so for awesome. like two years now. And amazing. I can tell you that the content became better, better and better, which is rare because you can speak about one industry five days a week and improve the quality of the content only for so much time. But you are constantly doing it. And uh, thanks for uh, all the metaphors and um, all the, the stories, because sometimes you have like things about mindset, then you have some interesting metaphors, then you have some stories, then uh, you have your oversold for our RSI uh, set up coming again and again. So uh, it's it's super interesting. And uh, I, I think many people will find it interesting. I, I really appreciate that. Like people should understand I'm, a, I'm just a guy, you know, and I wake up every day and I've got my mood or the thing I'm thinking about or what kept me up at night. And I have ADHD, right? So I have an attention deficit disorder. So what I'm thinking about is going to be very random on any given day. And the, the newsletter is the place that I get to sort of explore that each day. And it's it's very very good exercise for me. It's very, very flattering and impactful for me to hear that you think it's gotten better because it's, it's a lot of work. Yep. Cool. Thanks a lot. Have a nice Thank one. Thank you.